Jerusalem is known as the city of peace. Ironically enough, in the past century, the city has seen everything but peace. Even after more than 50 years of war, human suffering, and endless peace settlements, the region of current-day Israel and Palestine remains as far from peace as possible. This conflict is not just a religious one, but also a conflict of ethnicity, border, and most importantly, human rights. In order to understand the current situation of this long conflict, it is crucial that we understand the history behind it. Welcome to another episode of JSIA Podcast. Today, my friend Arun Kullar and I, Vedika Moon, are going to take you through the story of the Israel-Palestine conflict. We have with us Dr. Khinviraj Jamangir, the faculty coordinator of the Jindal Center for Israel Studies. Sir, it is an absolute honor to have you here with us. Thank you very much, Vedika and Aryan. I, I really appreciate uh, your work and uh, I'm, I'm very happy to, to help you in this conversation. All right, Professor. Um, so to, before beginning the podcast, I would um, like to know like, how is the current situation there? And um, actually, let's, let's, um, yeah, let's start with that. How is the current situation in Israel right now? To get a more clear look. Right. The situation in Israel or in Gaza is sad, as it happens uh, after any armed conflict or a war. Uh, people are trying to rebuild their homes. Uh, cities are getting you know, funding to, to rebuild themselves. And uh, overall, the, 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 this war ended in a, in a more worrisome situation for Israel. Because this is the first time that the Israeli citizens, Arab Palestinians, who usually do not take any position, they don't organize any kind of you know, protests when there's a war between Gaza and, and, and the Israeli army. Uh, this time they did, partly because the origin of the tension began in Jerusalem and uh, there are a lot of Palestinian citizens, Palestinians who are Israeli citizens and they are feeling threatened by the, by the Israeli state. They feel that they will not be protected or their rights will not be protected. So I think in Israel, uh, the rockets and the, and the war with Hamas is something that the Israeli army is quite capable of. But this new development that the Arab people of Israeli citizenship are also in a way getting out in the street. They vandalized a lot of cities. Uh, the, there were a lot of fights between the Jews and the Arabs inside the Israeli cities. Something that, that, has, that wasn't seen. Uh, it, was, it used to be a scene in the 1960s and 70s, but uh, that's very unusual in the last two, three decades to, to see that. So there's a lot of, uh, in a way, uh, security considerations within Israeli uh, borders. Borders, yeah. So when we talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict, it has been one of the longest ongoing conflict to date. So from its very beginning, there has been a feeling of intense nationalism by both the sides. Can you highlight on the starting point of this conflict and like how the nationalism plays a key role in it? Thank you. Uh, that's indeed the, the, the cornerstone of this conflict. Uh, 
it is one of the one of the really uh, complex conflicts of the 20th century but this is not the only one we have it india pakistan and south asia uh, these conflicts are historical they are still uh, lingering into the 21st century and their story is in the 19th century or in the 18th century the so the, it's a, it's a fight uh, you know a very simple way to way to describe the the problem of uh, two nationalisms here is that both the nationalisms uh, jewish nationalism called zionism and the palestinian nationalism uh, they both have been uh, fighting about uh, one piece of land unlike any other national movement uh, where piece of land can really satisfy the nation state and they can have a state for themselves here you really can't give the piece of land uh, to both because it's only one and very small piece of land so united nations uh, tried to resolve it in the year 1947 by dividing the land right that's the only let's say feasible thing to do that's the rational thing to do so the partition of palestine in 1947 was found to be the most practical or the only possible option it's a one land and two people are claiming and they both have valid claims so what can you do well divide it divide it uh, the division was not accepted by both the parties so the zionist leaders like david ben gurion uh high rights men people who were the faces of the of the jewish nationalism accepted the partition plan however the palestinians at that time who were largely led by the arab states so there was a arab league and arab high committee before that they rejected the partition plan now that was a very complex situation because uh, the division was found to be the only way out the division was done by united nations however the palestinians and the arabs felt that united nations is not a fair entity it is still deeply under the great powers of the time and uh, british empire had a greater role in it uh, the idea of the partition was earlier brought by the british to them in the year 1938 so britain when when britain had the control of this land under the league of nations and the mandate system it tried to divide the land between the jews and the palestinians in the year 1938 it's called peel commission other palestinians rejected it even then because they said it's not fair and is uh, england uh, united kingdom doesn't have any legitimacy to do that so after the 1947 even partition plan was rejected and the arabs on behalf of the palestinians gave a call that they are going to go and attack israel they are going to go for a war so from 1948 till uh, about 12 14 months there is a long war of 1948 and the five arab states united for the palestinian cause uh, these were saudi arabia uh, jordan egypt uh, iraq lebanon syria uh, and they were very powerful arab states at that time so the first six months palestinians fought the jews who came in and then uh, the arab states 
uh, took the battlefields, but in a very surprising way, they never were united. They never put up a united battle uh, with the with the Jews. So because they were deeply divided and they never had a united command, uh, the the Jewish or the Israeli forces could really defeat them in different different uh, parts uh, and in the directions uh, or the or the borders. So at the end, you have a very surprising result of the war that Arabs lost and Palestinians lost by that. Uh, result and Israel was established in the middle of a war in, in May 1948. So it's you know if you if you read the history of nationalism in 20th century, the, the Zionist Jewish nationalism and the Palestinian nationalism are two very important national movements. Unfortunately, the partition didn't get implemented, and uh, you have uh, the Israeli state uh, you know working. But uh, there is no Palestinian state. I must add here that uh, the territories that we consider today uh, the future, you know, territories of an independent Palestinian state like Gaza, West Bank, and east of Jerusalem, after the end of the 1948, they were actually controlled by the Arab states. So from 1948 till 1967, you have east of Jerusalem and West Bank under the Jordanian control. Jordanian control, yeah. And you have Gaza under the Egyptian control. They could have even declared a Palestinian state then, from 1948 onwards. But Arab states thought they just lost the battle in 1948, and they're going to fight another war with Israel. And uh, Israel should, uh, you know, in a way, not be part of this, this uh, world. So... <coughs> So one nationalism did well after 1948, the Jewish nationalism, and the other nationalism is still fighting through armed means, uh, Palestinian national movement. That's that's great, sir. Um, so when we talk about the history, uh, what was the what was the uh, part of the 19th uh, Six Day War in this conflict? Well, Sixth Day War was interesting uh, for the for the Palestinian uh, national movement. It's a war that had nothing to do with the Palestinian national movement. After the 1948, uh, Egypt and Israel fought another war in 1956. So the thing about the 1967 war is that it had least to do with the Palestinian people, uh, but more to do with the Arab states. Uh, in 1956, there was a it was a small war. It was more of an imperial war because of Britain and France uh, trying to get control of the Swiss Canal and not let Egyptian leader Gamal Abdel Nasser really uh, gain more strength there because he was deeply anti-British uh, you know, or the French imperial interest. In you know, because of the Cold War politics, uh, Arab states were, you know, deeply under the you know, influence of the Soviet Union, and they were, you know, assisted by Soviet Union. So Egypt really built up its military capabilities. And in 1967, you know, before June, Israelis got the intelligence that there is a fair amount of possibility that Egypt will lead uh, a war and an attack on Israel. So. 
in anticipation or more in, in technical international terms in, in preempting uh, the, the Egyptian move, Israel did a surprise attack on Egypt and Jordan and Syria together. In that uh, surprise preemptive strike, Israel was remarkably successful. Successful even to its own surprise. It defeated uh, you know, air power of three Arab states within six days. So the legacy of this war is also like six days war in history. Uh, what happened because of this war that Israel got some territories that were not previously with Israel. So Israel achieved West Bank from Jordan. Israel got east of Jerusalem from Jordan. Israel got Gulan Heights from Syria. Syria. And Israel got Gaza and Sinai Peninsula of the Egyptian territory as war trophies. Now, these were all war territories. I mean, war trophies uh, because Israel could really win them. And uh, it resulted into a different uh, kind of impact on the conflict because now the Palestinians of West Bank and east of Jerusalem were under the direct Israeli control. So 1967 war also brought upon a consequence called occupation. It's interesting that from 1948 till 1967, we do not hear the word occupation when the Jordanian and the Egyptians are controlling these territories, maybe because they were controlled by the Arabs. However, in international politics, diplomacy and law, you have a huge uh, conversation, a politically charged conversation about occupation of the Palestinian territories by the Israeli state. Uh, and that happens uh, from 1967 onwards. That's the, in a way, centrality of that war. So, so the next question. Every war impacts the diplomatic relations between countries. So can you tell us the global impact of the major wars that were fought between Israel and Palestine. And in addition to that, can you also highlight on the roles of these Arab nations that they played in this kind of conflict? Yes, indeed. Uh, every conflict has has you know larger impact of, of uh, things. Uh, regionally, Middle East, West Asia has been caught into this conflict since the year 1948 or even prior to that. When the 1948 war happened, it was more of Israel-Arab war. It was not about Israel-Palestinian only because there were more than five, six Arab states fighting a newly established Jewish state. Till 1967, you have Arab states fighting the Israeli state. In fact, you have 1973 war where Arab states did a very surprise attack on Israel and uh, really, really were, were close to defeat Israel in military terms uh, in 1973 Yom Kippur War. Right before the defeat, Americans intervened in the, in the you know, favor of Israel and they prevented almost uh, inevitable defeat uh, that Israel was looking at. Because America intervened and uh, didn't let the Arabs defeat Israel, Arab states did uh, oil uh, 
diplomacy. Uh, in retaliation, the Arab states closed uh, the supply of oil to Europe and America, which led to a very global oil crisis, uh, something that impacted even states like India, by the way. If you look at the pictures of 1974-1975, you know, even till 1978-79, India went through terrible oil crisis because there was no oil in the world market. Arab, just, Arab states said, well, period. We are not going to do this. So regionally and internationally, it did in a way impact a lot of things. Even now, even states like India, so because of the 1948 war and the way things were not resolved between the Jews and the, and the Arabs, uh, the Jews and the Palestinians, India did not support Israel after 1948. India took two years to recognize the Israeli state. And uh, America has been a very important player in, 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 West, in this conflict since 1973. Uh, before that, you have great powers like Britain, which has been very much involved in, in, the, in the events and, and ideas uh, of this conflict. Uh, from the time of, of Balfour Declaration in 1917. You have France getting into this, this region uh, in the 50s and 60s. You have Russia, Putin, uh, who, who also in a way has interest in this part of the world uh, because of the so many wars and so many uh, you know, peace uh, diplomacy or the peace processes. So yes, uh, I think uh, not only because uh, West Asia is important for its oil. It's just a very large part of the world. So if any war happens here, it does in a way draw the attention and diplomatic uh, moves uh, all over the world. <clears throat> Thank you, sir. So next question is, the two intifadas led to the deaths of thousands on both sides of the war. Can you highlight on the growth of the uh, you know, armed struggles and the impact of the intifadas on the human rights? And uh, if you can explain the intifadas also to the, to the people listening to this podcast. Yeah, that's an interesting word. And I think one should really talk about it uh, historically because in India, you have the use of the word intifada in Kashmir many times. Intifada in Arabic means uprising. And in the Palestinian nationalist struggle, it has played a very significant role. I slightly disagree the way you put it, that the two intifada led uh, to the deaths of the thousands. The two did not actually. The first intifada was peaceful. The first intifada did not use any violence. And I, I'll talk about it a little later. Uh, but let me explain a few things about what happened to the Palestinian struggle uh, once the Arab states in a way, moved uh, on from this conflict or moved away from this conflict. Egypt made bilateral full diplomatic peace with Israel in 1978 79 uh, by just saying, well, you know, Egypt is going to just have full peace and diplomatic relations with Israel and Palestinians will, will fight for themselves. Uh, Jordan makes full peace with the Israeli state in 1994. And then you saw recently, uh, you know, Abraham Accords, where UAE and Bahrain and, and Morocco and Sudan, they make peace with the state of Israel. And other Arab states like Saudi Arabia, they are doing quite a lot of business with Israel. 
So technically, there isn't an Arab solidarity. You know, uh, there is a rhetoric. There is this, you know, ceremonial uh, position in favor of the Palestinian state, like India does as well. But there is no tangible action, united actions from the Arab states. So Palestinian national movement was led by Yasser Arafat, uh, a very, very uh, controversial, complex, and extremely important person in the history of the Palestinian national movement. He used to wear a uniform. He used to carry a pistol with him always. And uh, he was the guerrilla fighter for the Palestinian national cause, who established PLO in the early 1960s and who always uh, believed that Palestinians have to fight for themselves that the Arab states are insincere, the Arab states are deeply divided, and they're really not going to bring any uh, you know, state for the Palestinian people. Uh, that movement was armed. Palestinian uh, liberation organization was extremely violent, very armed, did some major terrorist, I mean, violent uh, attacks on the Israeli state, on the civilians in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Intifada that happened in 1988, the first Intifada, was leaderless. Yasser Arafat wasn't even West Bank at that time. Yasser Arafat was in Tunisia because PLO was headquartered in Tunisia. Tunisia. And uh, he, he had nothing to do with the first Intifada. The first Intifada was an outcome of the Israeli occupation and the control of the people of West Bank that began from 1967. So people who lived with the checkpoints and military uh, authorities, they just wanted to protest. Uh, so the first Intifada was actually very Gandhian. And you know, a lot of scholars have written books about it, that how unique it was, that it was led by women, it was led by children, and they did not use even a petrol bomb on an on a Israeli soldier. At best they did, they threw stones the Israeli army or a tank. So it was truly a civilian protest. It was truly a mass movement. And it was also led by very, very peaceful methods. Not using any kind of violence, not attacking a soldier, not attacking a civilian at all. And the first Intifada, because it was so you know, unique and, and less violent, it really captured the attention of the world about the Palestinian occupation, you know, the Palestinian people under the occupation. So the first Intifada was a great uh, chapter, a golden chapter in the, in the Palestinian national movement. The second Intifada happened much later. It happened in the year 2000, 2001. And this second Intifada was led by Hamas. Very violent, extremely violent, suicide bombers. Uh, and many coffee houses in Tel Aviv, many buses in Israel were blasted. So not only the soldiers were attacked, the civilians were killed. And that was the entry of Hamas in the Palestinian national movement. Hamas came as a rival uh, to Fateh and Yasser Arafat. Hamas came with very different slogans. Hamas came with a very different ideology. We'll talk you know, maybe later about it. The, the second Intifada was radically different 
because it was extremely violent, led by suicide bombers, and lots of violent protests all over uh, the West Bank and Gaza. And it in a way killed the sentiment for peace uh, between the two people who were you know, seeing each other, maybe possibly ready for a two-state solution in the 90s. Uh, so, so the next question is, uh, why has achieving a proper peace settlement, which works in the long term, been so difficult for the two nations? So, can you explain the shortcomings of the previous peace settlements? Well, the lack of peace or the absence of peace is not because of a very faulty peace process called Oslo peace process. The, the Oslo peace process was unique. It was an extremely radical, extremely important event in the in the in the in the history of the two. It began in the year 1991 in Norway, where the Israelis and the Palestinian people were talking to each other, and they talked with each other in in secrecy. Indeed, I should tell all of you that HBO has come out with a fabulous uh, movie on it, and it's called Oslo. It captures uh, the Oslo peace process in its historical uh, conditions. It's, it's a must-watch if you're interested in, uh, in, 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 in that peace process. It was a long peace process. So in the year 1993, <clears throat> Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat came out in public uh, and shook hands with each other. And they said, we, we, you know, we believe in two-state solution. Palestinian national movement is legit. Yasser Arafat is no more a terrorist. And uh, Yarafat recognized the Israeli state. Before that, Palestinian leaders did not recognize the Israeli state. They used to just term it as Jewish entity. Uh, the Palestinians you know, did not accept to negotiate, but to fight with arms, the Israeli state. So Yasser Arafat offered two things, recognition to the state of Israel, and the renunciation of violence against the state of Israel. And it's fake in the two-state solution. Remember, in 1948, the partition plan was rejected by the Arabs and the Palestinians. So it had to be an Arab or a Palestinian leader to come back to the table and say, I accept the two-state solution. And that's what Arafat did. And that's why he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace, that he was truly a, a remarkable leader. Uh, that peace process failed, and there are many reasons for it. Uh, a, that it was you know an incremental peace process, so it, it went on for five years. But in those five years, not only that the two parties had to really talk on the most difficult parts of the conflict, like borders, Jerusalem, uh, the Palestinian refugees, uh, Israel's security, Hamas, uh, but also that they had these extremists on both sides. So Israel had religious parties uh, that believed in greater Israel. So they did not see occupation a problem. For them, West Bank is Judea and Samaria. And they publicly opposed their prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin, for negotiating with Yasser Arafat. In fact, in the year 1995, Yasser, uh, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by, uh, you know, Orthodox uh, Jewish young uh, uh, person, Igal Amir. 
uh, who is in jail right now. And he assassinated Itzhak Rabin just because he was talking for a two-state solution. On the Palestinian side, the extremism arose with the rise of Hamas. Hamas, you know, declared Yasser Arafat a traitor, an weak old man who is no more capable of fighting. And that's why he's sitting with the Israelis to negotiate. Uh, so Hamas led a certain pockets of the Palestinian national movement into religious radicalization, where whole of Palestine belongs to the uh, to the Palestinian people. That Jerusalem is 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 the is the land of Waqf, you know, the religious land that can never be shared, that can never be under the non-Muslim uh, control, and that extremism, in a way, fueled. Uh, uh, hatred and violence that killed uh, the work for the peace. So, Oslo peace process failed in a very long way with multiple factors. Uh, and those multiple factors existed on both sides. If I go back to your previous you know, our beginning, you asked, you know, we began to think about this conflict from nationalism and its history. If I need to talk about it, you know, with nationalism, then I'll say this. In the middle of the 20th century, in the, in the 1940s and 50s, the Jewish nationalism and the Palestinian nationalism was like any other national movement. It was all seeking a land for itself. But in the 80s and 90s, the idea of nationalism was no more modern, secular, or progressive nation state. The idea of the nationalism was deeply religious. So you have religious nationalism among the Palestinians. That's what Hamas does. And uh, you have religious nationalism among many parties in Israel who think two-state solution is not a solution for a Jewish state. So nationalism is still there, but now there is a more religiosity to it. More religious than religion. Yeah, and religion... You know, when, when it's when it's when it's religious nationalism, it is less uh, prone to compromise. It is less rational and more emotional. All right. <clears throat> so when we talk about these two sides, so do you think like there is a way forward for these two states to like come to a peace settlement? Well, right now we have a one state, which is Israel, and you have Palestinian people without a state. So, <clears throat> uh, it looks very sad because uh, Israel seems to be uh, adopting uh, a policy of conflict management where the conflict resolution is too much uh, unsettling domestically uh, within its own political uh, milieu. And Israel prefers to keep this status quo. It doesn't want uh, anything uh, you know, major happen in West Bank or in Jerusalem. Palestinian national movement is in a complete disarray. Uh, not only because Israel is a powerful uh, you know, you know, body to confront, confront, also because after the death of Yasser Arafat, in the year 2004, the Palestinian nationalism and the movement sadly had very, very poor uh, leadership. 
uh, Mahmoud Abbas came after Yasser Arafat, somebody who was mentored by, by Arafat. But Mahmoud Abbas turned out to be a very, very undemocratic, uh, autocratic, and uh, deeply problematic leader for the Palestinian national movement. So in last uh, decade and a half, he hasn't really strengthened any aspect of the Palestinian national movement. He has been either fighting the political pressure from Israel, political pressure from America, or the inner struggle with Hamas within the people of Palestinian uh, you know, origin. And then you have entity like Hamas, uh, a very radical extremist uh, actor, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. These are two very, very troublesome organizations who do not believe in the two-state solution. And they seem to have uh, very maximalist positions. So it doesn't really seem to be on a, on a promising note. Uh, there was, uh, you know, there was an Israeli diplomat once, Abba Eber. He was a good diplomat. Uh, and he said once that human beings and states often act wise once they have exhausted all other alternatives. So maybe, maybe there is more violence to be endured. And then there would be some kind of a reflection on both sides. What are they fighting for? Uh, so I think for us, it is very important to understand India's approach on the whole Israel-Palestine conflict. So can you highlight a little on that? So India had really, really interesting and <clears throat> very long chapter in this conflict. Even before India became independent, people like Jawaharlal Nehru, people like Mahatma Gandhi had a position on this conflict. And Gandhi had a position on this conflict in the year 1938. Uh, he wrote a very famous article uh, in, uh, in his newspaper, The Harijan. And he said, well, you know, it's a, uh, he criticized uh, the Zionist national movement quite a lot. He believed that they should rather be talking to the Palestinians and the Arabs than taking the help of the British to get to this part of the land. And you know, the, the Zionist leaders were, were at complete uh, you know, loss. They didn't really get the support of Gandhi and Nehru. Uh, and, and after the 1948 war, Nehru kept a critical view of Israel. So it took India two years to recognize Israel. Israel was recognized by India in the 1915. And then Nehru was reluctant to open the diplomatic relations. It could have happened in the year 1952-53 when Nehru almost said, let's prepare the budget and send an ambassador to Tel Aviv. However, the turning point to me is the 1956 war when Israel joined this imperial war with France and Britain to attack Egypt. To, to Nehru and non-alignment movement, Gamal Abdul Nasser was an important friend. And after that, in a way, Israel uh, was not, in a way, uh, diplomatically engaged. So India did not keep any diplomatic relations till 1992. A great part of Indian uh, foreign policy is, is uh, for a full political support for the Palestinian national movement. You should know that Yasser Arafat was a frequent flyer 
to Delhi when Indira Gandhi was a prime minister. He was he was regularly hosted by her, and <clears throat> after 1992, India revised its foreign policy and uh, opened its full diplomatic relations with the state of Israel. So now one can say that India doesn't boycott Israel for the sake of the Palestinian cause. India does good business with Israel. India has very strategic relationship with Israel, and Israel. Israel seems to be a very important diplomatic partner for India. Does it mean the abandonment of the Palestinian cause? No. In diplomacy and in international politics, it's not an either-or situation. India still retains a good amount of solidarity and political support for the Palestinian national movement. Uh, like in the, the latest uh, phase of the violence, uh, India said it firmly believes in the two-state solution that both the parties must de-escalate and use uh, this opportunity to get back to talks. Then they should start talking again and stop fighting. So India has, if I can say, a balancing act here, that it is appearing fair to both. Thank you so much, sir, for uh, joining us today for this podcast. Now, before ending this podcast, um, I would like to ask, uh, what would you like to say about, uh, you know, this peace? We just saw the news, and it was uh, it was written that there's a you know ceasefire between these two these two sides. So, uh, do you think there was any role of UN? This is just my question, personally asking. So, do you think there was any role of UN in this ceasefire? And does US even right now is like active in this situation? Not at all. UN unfortunately has had never been a no player of word mentioned. Uh, I think, and that's not very very strange here. I think nobody can really make the two parties sit on the table and make peace. Uh, they they did the ceasefire on very, very mutual grounds. Their ceasefire had nothing to do with anybody's pressure tactics. Uh, so I don't think this ceasefire was facilitated or you know, pressured by anybody. Israel went on a ceasefire because it considered what it achieved as good enough right now. Hamas made a good uh, story for itself. It got publicity, it got good number of support. Uh, there is some kind of a movement for itself. So I don't think they would consider any third party and the no, UN is, is certainly not uh, a possible player here. So Thank you so much for answering all our questions and uh, I, hope, I, hope, and, uh, I hope to talk with you again on this issue. And we'll, uh, we'll, uh, <clears throat> and we'll see uh, what happens in the future. And, Thank uh, you very much, Aryan. I, I really appreciate your work. And uh, Vedika, wonderful to have you here. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be very happy to have another chance to converse with you. Uh, and thank you very much. Thank you so much, sir. And um, that's all.